0: Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. And Eric, we've got something special lined up today, don't we? We do indeed.
1: I'm so excited about this. Actually, the industry's first real journalist, a real (laughs) journalist, and a real book on the history of Nitro. And I'm so excited to be here and be a part of it.
0: Of course, we're talking about the book that has basically been the basis of this podcast, Nitro. The incredible rise and inevitable collapse of Ted Turner's WCW. And today we are joined by a very first thing we've ever done on the show like this. The incredible guest that we've been waiting for, Mr. Guy Evans. Guy, welcome to the show. We don't normally do guests. We're making an exception here because Eric and I are so high on your book. And we appreciate you taking the time out to join us here today and talk a little bit about the good old days of
2: WCW. So there's no pressure then after an interview. Inch- production like that, Eric and Conrad. No pressure <laughs> at all. <laughs> no, listen, I really appreciate you guys having me on the show. It's really blown me away to hear um, all of your comments about the book over the best part of uh, these last 10 or 12 months. And so many people I know found out about the book from your your show. So I'm really, uh, really pleased to be here with you.
0: Well, if
1: and, you have- I, I just want to say, Conrad, I'm sorry to interrupt you, bro. I, I just want to say, just right off the bat, because – I'm sure we're going to have listeners that are going to think, well, the only reason, you know, Eric and Conrad have a guy on the show is because he, he's putting Eric over or he's putting WCW over from Eric's mm-hmm. perspective. And I, I want to say that, when you know, when I got your book and I, I went through it online and I burned through it like in about 12 hours straight. Mm. Um, I'm not a speed reader, but I, I went through it as fast as I could. There were a lot of things in this book. That were not necessarily complimentary to me, mm-hmm. and and that notwithstanding, the accuracy and the effort that you put into this book is what makes it stand out for me. Not whether it put me over or buried me; that wasn't the issue. Or during my my time there, but just the detail and and the effort that you put into this. Just hats off to you, brother. You, you I'm I'm just so proud of the work you did, even though I had nothing to do with it.
2: Well, it's really kind of you, Eric. And I've, I've said this in, uh, not to make myself sound like a a big star here, but you know, I've done a couple of interviews and I I do mean a couple for the book, (laughs) nothing, nothing much beyond that. But, um, in some other interviews, I've mentioned to people that, you know, whatever their personal, you know, feelings towards yourself, Eric, I think we can all agree. It's, it's quite commendable that, Um, you can keep that perspective having, as you said there, read some things in the book that perhaps were not the most comfortable or or nice things to read about you. And I've said to other people, you know, if you put yourself in, uh, in that situation, if you imagine someone writing a book either about you personally or about an organization that you were intricately involved in and maybe there were some things in there you wouldn't like to come across, how many of us honestly speaking, would, would keep that perspective and have that reaction. So, um, so in turn, you know, I would like to say that, that I really appreciate um, you being able to, to see it that way as well.
1: Well, and, you know, and, and what struck me about your book was just the, well, so many things, and I, I don't, I don't, don't want to hog this, you know, Conrad's the captain of the ship. I'm just along <laughs> for the ride, but I, I just have to say that the, the level of detail and the access that you got Mm -hmm. I mean, I wouldn't know how to reach half the people that you were able to interview.
2: I mean, I was just fascinated by that. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I remember when I uh, got in touch with uh, Buff Bagwell, you know, and he had he sort of asked me, uh, you know, who are the other people that you've spoken to? He said, I, you know, I've heard a little bit about this project through the grapevine, but not too much. So give me an idea of who who you've talked to. And as I was kind of going through the names, he said the same thing. You know, he said, I. I I wouldn't even know where to start in terms of how to get through to these people. So I think uh, that's kind of a story in itself. And it's, it's one that, that I did not expect in terms of how um, accessible people were and how willing people were to help once they got the sense that this was a legitimate project. And I was you know, acting in, in good faith, I suppose, at least, um, you know, approaching this from the standpoint of wanting to get it right, wanting to get, um, you know, the, the the true story as best as I could determine it. And it was really amazing, you know, how helpful people were once they once they got that that sense. Cool.
0: All right, Conrad, let her rip. Well, I guess we should tell everybody, you can pick up this book at WCWNitroBook.com. And uh, we can't recommend it enough. We, this is not an ad. I know this sounds silly, uh, but Guy is not paying to be on the show. And I know as the listener right now, you're thinking, well, why are they making an exception and having a guest? It's because the book is that awesome. I mean, it, you don't have to take my word for it. Go look it up on Amazon. The book is available on Amazon as well, but I imagine Guy does a little better if you pick it up at wcwnitrobook.com. So go there. Uh, but you can read the reviews on Amazon. And the very first one says, I'll give you the bottom line up front. This is the best wrestling book ever written. If you're a fan at all, go buy it. And it's just one review after another like that. And it's because of the incredible detail and the amount of access that you were given. And we're going to bounce around a little bit here, but I should tell everybody Mm -hmm. the reason we're covering this is because we're going to do this with a whole panel of WCW dignitaries, if if you will, at StarCast. And Guy was... Uh, Willing to uh, come on and join Eric Bischoff at StarCast. And we're going to have some other people who were working behind the scenes in WCW at the time. And we're going to talk about some of these topics in long form. But one of the things I'm most fascinated with, and I just want to go to it straight away, because Mm. I found myself reading this and just slack jawed like that can't be real. And I want to talk about a lady that Gene Simmons knew. And, Guy, you know what I'm talking (laughs) about. I want to tag out right now. And have you oh, tell yes. us the incredible story of Lenita Erickson, which is a name that I had never even heard of before. Mm. And I, I know Eric was familiar with her, but he probably learned some things about Lenita reading this book as well. Is that fair to say, Eric? Uh, yeah. I mean, and
1: and guy before we, you know, we, we turn you loose on this. I had mm. never heard of Lenita Erickson until I read your book. And mm. very coincidentally, I mean, like, super small world kind of thing. I'm, I'm in business with a gentleman. I'm not going to name his name. I'm, I'm not going to drop it here, but a, a very, very powerful person in Hollywood who was actually kind of running interference <laughs> between Juanita <laughs> mm. and whoever she was banging from, from kiss. And when I read your book, I had a meeting about three days later and I said, Hey, blank. Um, what's up with Lenita Erickson and WCW and this person from Cass? And he, I mean, his head almost exploded. How the hell did you hear about that? <laughs> <laughs> it was great. It was a great that, moment.
2: That is quite the coincidence. Well, I'll tell you, you know, that that all came about just out of sheer curiosity, really. You know, as you can imagine, in doing the research for this book, you know, I was tearing through everything I could get my hands on. Obviously, as a lot of people know, and I know you guys have have talked about, you know, I was fortunate enough to speak to over 120 people, either associated with WCW itself or the the wider corporate entity of TBS. And so that was my primary research um, for the book. But obviously, you know, part of that entailed going through old newspaper articles and press reports at the time. And I don't remember specifically where it was, but. I remember coming across something to do with WCW in the later part of 2000, and it was kind of a a footnote. You know, there's this lady named Lenita Erickson who has uh, apparently some contacts in the entertainment world who is a part of WCW now. And, And so it occurred to me, hey, I should try to find out who this Lignita Erickson is and reach out to her and, you know, see if nothing else, maybe she has a couple of anecdotes that she remembers uh, about the company. And it was actually a very long process to try to find out how to get in touch with her. I want to say maybe six or eight months. And it wasn't as if, you know, every single day I'm, I'm, uh, I'm on the case, so to speak, because there were plenty of other things going around. But um, it did take quite a while to get in touch with her. And I, I remember the first time we spoke on the phone, um, again, as with everyone else, she wanted to get a sense of what this was all about and, um, and and what was going on. And once we'd established that, she said, "Okay, I'm, you know, I think I'm ready to sort of divulge some things that I've never talked about before. And I've definitely got some information that's going to really blow you away." She said, "I'm, I'm going to, you know, I feel comfortable. It's been enough time, and I feel like you know you're approaching this in the right way that." Um, I'm comfortable to open up here and, and, uh, I guarantee there's going to be some stuff you'll, you're going to hear from me. You probably won't hear from other people. And so I said, well, let's set up the interview as soon as we can. And of course, you know, in that intervening period, I was kind of second guessing, is she going to uh, change her mind at the last minute? Is this interview still going to happen? But needless to say, it did happen. And as people can read about in the book, um, just the, the, the openness, uh, that she displayed in that interview and how. Um, she sort of laid everything on the table, I think, in terms of what her involvement is, and I know a lot of people have speculated and commented on, you know, her involvement ed- even leading up to the very last week that WCW was on Turner, and uh, I won't give too much of that away in case people haven't read the book, but um, you know, that was just a just an innocent, uh, or, or rather, just a. Uh, uh, I, w- an I would I would I would beg to you
1: differ on the innocent part. I mean, she was kind of a ring rat, oh. from my. And, hold, and hold a, on hold on and, <laughs> in, and, and, a kiss rat so i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna throw a flag on the, on the innocent part
2: oh no there's no need to flow uh throw a flag up there i was i was gonna say an innocent attempt on on my part uh to reach out to someone whose name i just come across you know just out of sheer curiosity and um and had no idea where that lead would would uh or what road that would take me down so quite a quite an amazing thing that happened uh, getting in touch with her
1: i think she's living in uh or last I checked, she was in Michigan and it's kind of in 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 obscurity, if she's still alive. But yeah, she she had her moment in the sun as a as a kiss kind of wannabe, um, kiss rat, and made her move over to WCW. And and again, after hearing or reading what what you had in your book, uh, obviously I had to dig into that a little bit,
2: and it was mm-hmm. very very interesting. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, again, I think it's I'm not sure if we'll we'll sort of get into this or not, but I've had a lot of emails from people saying, you know, how, how are you able to um, get people to, to open up so much or to divulge so much? And, and that's not to say, by the way, that every single thing you hear either sitting across from someone, because, of course, I did some interviews in person or. Everything that you hear on the other end of the phone, you know, goes in the book. I mean, there were half a dozen people, if not more, that I spoke to that nothing came out of those conversations because I didn't believe that there was any factual basis at all to a lot of what they were saying. Um, You know, you couldn't corroborate what they were saying. It didn't match up with some very obvious facts about WCW and that time period. Um, But a lot of people have said, you know, how did you get people to divulge so much? And I think a lot of times it comes from just asking open-ended questions and and listening. And it's amazing sometimes when you give people that space, what direction they go down with their answers. And um, I was was just as amazed as uh, a lot of people are reading the book at what some people have to say.
0: Well, guy, I know you're going to be a little upset by this, but I feel like we've got to go a little bit further down this Lenita Erickson story because this just blew me away. And so the concept is Eric cuts a deal with Gene Simmons for kiss to be involved with WCW and everybody remembers the kiss demon. And we've talked a little bit about what the plans would have been for kiss. Uh, and it was going to be a big licensing play and, and it was going to be a big pay-per-view and new year's evil. It, It was, it was a good idea in theory. Uh, but for whatever reason, it doesn't work out to be the huge success that maybe people had hoped it would, but now Gene Simmons has a relationship in WCW and Lenita Erickson, uh, who was friendly with Gene Simmons. There's a word, uh, managed to get a meeting with Brad Siegel, who is uh, very much high up the food chain with Tom Warner and WCW. And, uh, she really impressed Brad Siegel. So through <laughs> through a series of, yeah, there's, I'm trying to be polite here. Through a series of uh, meetings, they decide, hey, we're going to hire her and we're going to pay her $500 per event. And oh, by the way, an annual salary of $125,000 a year. So someone you as a listener has probably never heard of before started out with what a lot of the guys on the main roster are making, and you can figure out and put two and two together how you'd like. But now safe to say she has Brad's ear when WCW starts to go down And, and there are lots of different options of, Hey, where will WCW wind up? Lenita Erickson tries to rally the troops with JJ Dillon and other folks. And tries to make a run at controlling WCW. You heard me right. Lenita Erickson was actually in the conversation to be the person steering WCW all because of a relationship that she made with Gene Simmons. And then somehow positioned herself to be in a relationship with Brad Siegel, not in a relationship, but have a relationship. And so she has Brad's ear. And so now if she goes and makes her presentation, she can get in front of Brad even easier than a lot of WCW talent could. Is that fair to say, mm-hmm. Eric? Let, let
1: me, I, I got to back that up a little bit. I had never heard of Lenita Erickson until Guy's book came out. So all of this, um, drama took place. After after September 10th, 1999, this, this was post-Eric Bischoff. Despite what she said in Guy's book, I never met with her at, at CAA or any other agency. I'd never heard of her before. My dealings with Gene Simmons were directly with Gene Simmons. You know, I had two meetings with Gene Simmons, only two. No more. There were no agents involved. I had my first meeting with Gene Simmons at the um, uh, the Beverly Hills Hilton. That was the very first time I had ever met Gene Simmons. Subsequent to that meeting, I met Gene Simmons at his house at 8 o'clock in the freaking morning because that was, you know, what his schedule mandated. And his wife, um, and I'm so embarrassed I can't remember her name. Um,
0: Shannon Tweed.
1: Shannon Tweed. Was actually cooking eggs in the breakfast in the kitchen for for us to have for breakfast in his house. There were there were two meetings between Gene and I. That was it. I had never laid eyes on this woman or ever heard her name. And I, you know I'm not disparaging or or criticizing what was in the book because that was her version of the story. And I'm grateful as hell that you covered it, guy. But as I'm reading this book and I'm hearing about her. How you know I reacted to her in a meeting with a you know at an agency is just completely self-serving
2: in fiction. Well, I suppose uh, you covered a lot of ground there, uh, both of you. And so, uh, just to add on to that, um, again, trying not to give away too much, but you're right in saying it's a it's fairly major development um, in the book, and it's something that. Pretty much, no one had had come across, to my knowledge, prior to Nitro coming out. Um, you know, October the thirty-first, two thousand, was the date that um, her contract went into effect at WCW, um, which which obviously is is very late in the in the day, so to speak. If you look at the existence of the company and, and what happened afterwards, and if people go on the internet and type in, perhaps on YouTube, I think it's still up there. You'll see that about a week after that. Um, I think it was about six or seven days after that, actually, she did appear on television on an episode of thunder and she was a, a backstage interviewer that appeared once and, and never was seen again. And, um, you know, it's, it, there's a little bit of, of confusion and a little bit of ambiguity, I think as to how exactly that happened. She talks about the rationale, uh, from her perspective in the book, um, but I think, uh, you know, according to her, um, she she mentions in the book that she felt, um, again, in her words, that she was brought in under some false pretenses. And once she found out what those pretenses were, she decided to make a play, as you said there, Conrad, with J.J. Uh, Dillon and Jerry Jarrett at the time to actually take over WCW. And by all accounts, you know, they, they had a... A formal meeting that lasted, I believe, the the uh, the time is in the book, but somewhere in the region of about two hours. So this was something that that wasn't um, just for show. This was a, a serious deal um, that you know eventually sort of petered out once uh, Fusion Media Ventures came into play. But um, as people know who've read the book, that's not the last we hear from Lenita in the story. So um, you know, again, there, there, I'm sure there's some things in terms of her testimony, so to speak, that. Um, you know, more factual than than other things, but um, just just you know, listening to her recollections and her perspective is is quite interesting. Just to jump
1: in here, and and I can't help it, you know, and I told Conrad right before we got on with you guys I said let's let's not give away so much that there's nothing left to talk about. And honestly, there is so much in your book. I honestly think we could do one hour a week for the next fifty two <laughs> weeks and not even cover it all. Why? But I, I just want to make it, I want, I want to make one thing really clear because these there, there are certain points that are really personal to me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, one of them is, you know, JJ Dillon, who was basically a freaking potted plant that I hired because I felt sorry for him because he had two special needs kids. And somebody, you know, Kevin Nash said, hey, he's a good guy. He could help with talent relations. It was an act of kindness on my part. And he turned out to be a real, kind of snake and and Jerry Jarrett was a guy that I actually hired as a consultant early on when I first took over WCW and if there was ever anybody that didn't have anything under the hood it was Jerry Jarrett this guy was locked in 1972 and had't since about five years prior to that and Jerry Jarrett's attempt to buy WCW was an acquaintance of his, and, and I wish I remembered his name. And I'll, I'll remember it when we get to Las Vegas. I'll have to do a little research. Because he's actually reached out to me once or twice since that time. Hmm. Very, very wealthy guy uh, on the East Coast who j- somehow Jerry knew. And after I had announced, or we had, not I had, after Fusion Media announced that they were going to purchase WCW... Jerry Jurrett's relationship reached out to me and said, hey, is there any room for us in this deal? Mm. And I said, that's not really my call. I'm not structuring this deal, but I'll pass it along. That was the absolute limit to Jerry Jurrett's so-called attempt to buy WCW. Okay. I'm. I'm not going to go on beyond that because I'll. I'll start getting too animated.
2: <laughs> well, I think. Uh, <clears throat> well, it's interesting about that. If you. If you go back earlier in the book, and I think you know what, what I'm about to say, some people will be, um, or a lot of people listening to this will be aware of to some extent. You know, of course, there there were, as I'm sure you know. Well, obviously, you know, Eric, there were some discussions in in March of 2000 where. Jerry Jarrett was looking, I believe, uh, for some sort of consultant role or, or managerial role. Certainly not on the level of, of course, you know, owning the company or, or anything to that degree. Um, but, but obviously, you know, this was a, I assume, a progression of attempts that he was making over that that final year um, in order to uh, to to try to get involved in in the company in some way, shape, or form. And uh, I wish I had the the exact timeline in front of me now, and I could I could probably respond in in some more detail. Um, but I think it's it's quite interesting when you look at you know one particular point in time. Uh, you know he was having discussions with with Brad Siegel and and Bill Bush about coming in in some capacity, and then we fast forward about six months later, and obviously, you know according to him, and I do use that that word quite frequently in the book, as people have probably picked up, according to him and and Lisa and some other people, you know that um, involvement or potential involvement had escalated. So, um, you know, people, people will have to go back and read the book to see what they say about that. Sure.
0: You know, I guess I should mention here cause I just can't help myself. Uh, we're going to have JJ Dillon on hand as a part of this panel and we're going to get to dive deeper into that. But one of the other things uh, that I've wanted to talk about is the way the whole sale happened, To the WWE, because there was a commonality between the person who brokered the deal from the WCW Mm -hmm. side and the person who negotiated the deal for Vince McMahon for the WWF side that I don't think had ever been revealed until right here.
2: So, yeah, I think you're referring to Stu Steidham. Uh, who obviously had a history at Turner Broadcasting and a prior relationship with Brad Siegel, went on to become the president of uh, the WWF at the time for a relatively short period, I think for about 12 months or so. And, you know, Conrad, I, I had actually come across his name in some other accounts of the WCW story. And again, going back to some of those reports at the time, you would, you would sort of see things implied as to his involvement. Um, and it, it was rather curious to me why... Apparently, you know, we had never heard from Stu Snyder himself, and that was, in, in large part, that was one of my uh, primary motivations, in, in, or primary reasons for doing the book, is um, you know, we would hear a lot about these sort of shadowy figures, Jamie Kellner, Stu Snyder, um, you know, and so on, with, without actually hearing from these people as to, you know, their perspective on what happened. Um, so that that was another interview that took a very long time to try to set up, and I think he was quite uh, from what I could gather, quite hesitant to do it. But eventually, you know, I was able to speak with him. And uh, and I put it forward to him, Conrad, very directly in terms of what the conjecture has been. Um, and I believe that you've talked about that on on the show uh, previously. And he responded, you know, in his words directly to that conjecture. And that's what makes it in the book. Um, and so, you know, it certainly wasn't easy to even... Approach that subject and get to that point to him uh, to to respond, but I thought it would be intellectually dishonest to you know mention that in passing without actually speaking to the person himself. Guy, can, can I jump in here? And I'm sorry, Conrad.
1: This is the part of your book that gets me passionate. Mm-hmm. How, I want to ask you: How do you get to someone like Stu Snyder? Mm-hmm. I mean, look. WCW and, and actually Turner Broadcasting, the whole AOL Time Warner merger was a complete fucking disaster. Mm-hmm. And, and and a lot of the people that were, you know, ex- executive committee members like Stu Snyder and other people, or or very high-ranking people at one point or another, were all part of that decision-making process. How do you get them to open up to
2: you? How do you get that access? You know, it was different in every case. Uh, You know, some people were easier to find than others, but obviously, as people can imagine, there's no database that you can click on online that has a complete list of, you know, all of these former WCW and TBS employees and how to get in touch with them. So you do have to do a lot of digging. You have to try to connect some dots in terms of, you know um, employment perhaps that they've moved on since that time and sometimes you have to go through peripheral people in order to get in touch with that particular person and I'm pretty sure that was the case with Stu Snyder and then once you have that person's attention I think it's just a matter of being very transparent and open with exactly what are you trying to do and you know I would tend to tell people from Jump Street really um, you know what I'm doing and perhaps you know certain areas that I might, uh, speak to them about in an interview. Um, you know, I would make it known that unless they had, you know, some sort of major objection that all of the interviews I was doing, were going to be on the record and I would be looking to, to print what they said to me. And, um, you know, it's not something that you can jump in with the first question. Hey, Stu, you know, thanks for giving me a time. Now tell me why you, you sabotaged, you know, the, the WCW situation at the end, you know, why, why did you do that for your old pal, Brad Siegel? You know, that's something that, maybe after establishing some background as to his involvement and in his uh, relationship with both companies, that's something you get to later on in the conversation. But, you know, I, would like to think that I'm a pretty straightforward person. I mean, I think it was the same when I reached out to you, Eric, I know you get hundreds upon hundreds of requests, uh, surely to do interviews every year, but I'm pretty sure it was the same thing. I kind of laid my cards on the table, said this is what I'm doing. And, and, uh, and you know, you were, uh, you were kind enough to, to give me a time.
1: It's it it it's fascinating to me though that you reach so high above because you know, look, I've been in this business for thirty-two years. Mm-hmm. Wrestlers, promoters, bookers, people that have had high profiles in the wrestling business, they're always eager to talk. They're always eager to tell their mm-hmm. story or retell mm-hmm. their story or tell a new story or change a story. But very rarely, not, not even very rarely, until your book came along, no one has ever reached out to the people that were re- the real puppet masters, the Steve Hires, the Brad Seagulls, the Bill Burks, the Joe Yuvas. These are people that dirt sheet writers like Dave Meltzer and others, they don't even know who they are. And you were able to not only find them, but you were able to get direct interviews and opinions from and points of view from. And I think that's, that's what makes your book so special.
2: Well, I appreciate that. And just to be clear, you know, half the time I was amazed at some of the people that I was able to get in touch with because I started from a point of actually having no existing contacts in in the wrestling business, in the TV and media entertainment business. I mean, you name it. I was literally starting from scratch and trying to, sort of build credibility one person after another but i think now that i think about it i think what appealed to some of those people was the notion that there had been things written about them and their involvement in the past that in most cases they were actually aware of previously i'm sure you know by hook or by crook over the years they they came across some of those reports or some of that coverage and you know here was someone ostensibly um, reaching out on on good faith to to get them to respond to some of those things and explore other areas as well. So I, I would have to think that was part of the motivation on on part of, on the part of some of those people to try to, from their point of view, set the record straight. And um, you know, but yeah, I mean there were, <laughs> there were sometimes even you know someone like Brian Bedell, Eric, of course, who who you worked with there at, at the end with with Fusion. Um, you know, the first couple of times I heard back from him, it seemed like there was no interest whatsoever. It was something that You know, in his words, it happened a long time ago. Um, But, you know, in in a sort of polite way, you keep chipping away. And, you know, I was able to get him on the phone for about an hour and just covered a whole lot of ground. So it really was amazing.
1: Brian Bedell is a really brilliant guy by the name. uh, By the way, his um, niece is um, Elizabeth Rosenthal, who is Hulk Hogan's publicist. Mm. Brian Bedell is a brilliant, brilliant guy. And, and I'm, I'm glad you got some input from him.
2: Yeah. And, and, you know, it kind of sounds cheesy, but you know, one of the nice things about doing something like this is you speak to someone like that, who's of course had tremendous success, uh, to say the least in, in his field. And you actually take away things that you can apply to other aspects of your life. You take away certain lessons and, and ideas that, you know, may not actually make it in the book, but make you think. And, you know, I, I got the same, uh, same reaction, I remember speaking with Bill Burke. That was a conversation that happened in person. And we had a couple of hours to, to cover a whole lot of ground. And I learned so much about the the TV and you know, media business generally from speaking to him uh, and other things as well, which I still remember to this day. So that, that's a very nice byproduct that comes out from doing something like this, the things you learn from very accomplished people.
1: Bill Burke was a really, really smart young man. Mm-hmm. I mean, when, when I knew him, he was Probably in his mid thirties, late thirties, mm-hmm. um, but a brilliant, brilliant guy. And I'd be interested to hear, interested to hear, how he felt about that period of time. I mean, what was your takeaway mm-hmm. when you when you talked to Bill Burke? Because f- for me, I'll tell you on my end. For mm-hmm. me, you know, when 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 Ted Turner said, "Okay, let's launch Thunder," and by the way, that was. Right before the AOL Time Warner merger, or Time Warner merger, and everybody was trying to shore up their EBITDA, and everybody was trying to make their own divisions look great. Bill Burke was one of the first people that said, Yeah, Ted may want it, but I'm not paying for it. What Mm. was Bill Burke's impression of that
2: initiative for Thunder? Well, I think in the book he details a, a, a summit of sorts that that took place between himself and Brad Siegel and, and Ted Turner over the the specific issue of Thunder, uh, which is something that that I hadn't come across before. Um, gen- generally speaking, I think he was somewhat of a realist about uh, WCW's place within the TBS hierarchy, so to speak. I think you know he acknowledged, and a lot of this made in, made it into the book that. He thought, you know, in in his words, it it was a lot of fun. There were, um, you know, the the of of the public than perhaps uh, a lot of people, particularly within the advertising community, actually understood or appreciated. But he also understood, I think, uh, that from his vantage point, it could only grow to a, a certain level and could only go so far within that particular corporate environment. And he was someone who would tell you straight up that, you know, having wrestling on the airwaves, especially in such a prominent spot and and so often and in in a position where, you know, there's there's no off season. It's on the programming schedule week after week after week. You know, he would tell you there were a lot of people who were not happy about that. And, uh, you know, one of the one of the confusing things I, I heard recently, um, you know, I, I heard recently this this notion that uh, the the level of vitriol towards WCW within. Some of the, the 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 Turner higher ups, or among some of the Turner higher ups, you know, a couple of people have said, well, that's that's overblown. That's you know, that that didn't really exist aside from a couple of people. I mean, speaking with someone like Bill Burke, you you get the impression, along with speaking with other people, that that was not a minority opinion. I mean, there were many many people, especially the higher up you got in the food chain. I don't have to tell you this, Eric, that were not happy uh, with that company even being part of. Uh, that, that corporate structure. So that's, that's another thing I really took away from talking to him. I could spend about 25 minutes commenting on
0: that, but I'm Mm -hmm. not going to do it. Conrad, What do you got? Well, you know, I do want to talk a little bit about, you know, thunder, because I think we've spent a lot of time on this show talking about, you know, how bad it was for the company and, and specifically from your perspective, Eric, but I think we, what sort of gets lost in the lead it, it, or, or, or we bury the lead here is that it debuted to a huge number. You know, th- this was a, a huge success when it debuted, uh, January 8th, 1998. Uh, it's reportedly, uh, the most watched cable debut in history, which is really impressive. It gets a 4.0 rating. And there's a lot of wrestling companies right now who would kill for a 4.0 rating. Uh, But it did feel like the beginning of the end, from Eric's perspective, when you chatted with a lot of WCW brass and higher-ups, did you get that same story over and over, that Thunder was really the beginning of the end?
2: Yeah, I I appreciate what you're saying in terms of its initial success, but I think it's sort of the law of diminishing returns, isn't it? I mean, when you've got a second show running week after week, and of course, WCW uh, went to that stage before the WWF did, of course, you know, adding SmackDown the following year, I think it was just a matter of time before um, the the on-screen product became diluted and, and less interesting. And you know, I, I don't I don't really know what could have been done to to counteract that. Uh, to be honest, I know from speaking to a lot of the production people, um, you know, Thunder was something that if I didn't mention to them, they would mention to me very quickly in the conversation. That stuck out in their head as being a major turning point because of the, uh, the added workload. Um, and I think from their perspective, you know, feeling like there weren't enough additional bodies added to cope with that particular workload. Um, so it, you know, again, I, I, know it's, 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 it's factual what you're saying in terms of how well it was received at least in that initial week. But I just, I don't see, I don't see how that could have been made into a successful, proposition four hours. And then of course, five hours of wrestling every single week. In, in that environment, um, I really don't know how you could have made that work.
0: Well, and Eric, one of the things we've talked about and we've just teased it, we haven't really dug deep, but it's discussed in great detail in the book is how there was a discussion and allegedly you had it all lined up for nitro or well not nitro, but WCW to have a show on NBC and Turner shut it down. And process what a game changer WWE signing that Fox contract last year has been for that company and their stock and their shareholders. I mean, they have made billions of dollars as a result of that. And you had that deal worked out in 1998 and then it doesn't come to fruition.
1: Yeah. And and I think this is, uh, well, looking back at it now, this is an early look at the kind of, uh, challenge that massive corporate structure creates. You know, you had one group of people, especially on the WCW side, even Harvey Schiller, which was very supportive of it. But you you had a guy by the name of Joe Yuva who was on the ad sales side who went, no, why would we ever want to put one of Turner Properties on a competitive network? And it was such a lost opportunity. But, you know... I have a different view of it now looking back at it. I I understand why everybody thought the way they thought and what their strategies were. But, man, what a missed opportunity that was.
2: I I think that's, um, you know, such a huge turning point, isn't it, In in the entire Monday Night Wars? And, you know, I hope that I gave that enough credence in the book. I mean, in retrospect, probably should have spent a little bit more time on it. But you think about how. So many things could have been different if those specials actually made it to air, especially one thing uh, I think people have to keep in mind is the, the the exact context in which those negotiations were happening. This was at a time, if you look at it in terms of television ratings, at least, that both companies were absolutely neck and neck. And so I think any you know, additional exposure, and of course, it would have been a significant amount of additional mainstream exposure that one company could have got. Uh, as opposed to another, uh, could have certainly turned the tide or, or made a tremendous difference in terms of what happened in 99 and then beyond.
0: Well, And it's worth mentioning too, you know, we're sitting here you know, sort of playing the violin about how terrible it was in 1998. We should mention uh, that a accord- and, and this has always been fuzzy math here on the show, and, and Eric has challenged any time, you know, one of the newsletters said, oh, well, here's what the numbers are. He would always push back and say, well, how do they know that? And you yourself found when you're doing all these interviews that there was a lot of, shall we say, creative accounting going on behind Mm -hmm. the scenes. But one source familiar with the numbers would suggest that WCW grossed $188 million in 1998, which is just an incredible sum of money. I mean, roughly half a million dollars a day coming in. Uh, But for whatever reason, it's not sustainable. Let's talk a little bit about... Uh, the fuzzy math and the creative accounting, because Eric has mm-hmm. has talked about that until he was blue in the face. What was your experience like when when accounting came up in all your interviews?
2: Well, Conrad, I think my general take is you know there's a tendency of a lot of us when we think about a company like WCW, we sort of look at it through the lens of the the way that we would look at an independent wrestling organization, and by that I mean. And of course, I've never ran a, an independent show. So I'm kind of just going off my conception of what I think it would be like and how it works. But I think I'm pretty accurate here in terms of saying that the way that you would make a determination about the success of a particular independent standalone event or perhaps a series of events would be you would look at your your outlay. You would look at what you had to pay out to make that event possible in terms of talent costs and rentals and, you know, security possibly and, and things of that nature. You'd look at what comes in in terms of your revenue, ticket sales. Maybe it was on iPay per view Maybe that was a revenue stream. Perhaps you sold some merchandise at the event. And I think fairly clearly there, you can sit back at the end of the day and, and make a, a very sound judgment as to how successful that particular event was. But for those of us, and, and I'm probably speaking to a large majority of the audience here who have worked in a in a large organization and have worked um, in an institution or, or or for a company that involves uh, many sort of divisions and and many individual entities within that that wider structure, you probably have an appreciation for how, uh, revenue can be shifted around. Sometimes there's revenue that's generated by a particular division that doesn't get reported at the level of that division, and certainly that happened uh, from everything I could gather with WCW. Um, and uh, by a on the on the same um, on the same subject, or uh, well, similarly, you know, there are certain expenses that may um, be accrued by a particular organization that don't get recorded there, and of course some expenses. Uh, get recorded or, or spread out over time. So it's it's a very sort of simplistic idea, I think, to sort of uh, look at, you know, if you come across something that says WCW lost $10 million in this particular year, or it made $10 million in, in this particular year, or, or the famous number that, of course, everyone cites the loss of $62 million in the year 2000. What's more important, quite frankly, I think, rather than fixating on that 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 number is understanding the structure in which uh, or the the structure of the budget uh, that was present within that wider organization that actually led to that figure being reported and all i would do is direct people in the book to to chapter 9 uh, which really goes into this in tremendous detail and and more than i could now speaking to you um, off the top of my head but there's a, a fellow by the name of dick cheatham who was really plugged into the, the turn of financial people and, uh, and obviously had a tremendous amount of, of knowledge and, and interaction with WCW itself. And if you read what he says about what an absolute mess it was uh, on that level... Because the dirty little secret, uh, according to to Dick Cheatham and, and many other people in his position, was that Turner Broadcasting never really made a lot of money. The whole company was was revenue driven, and uh, and as a result of that, there were just just many things that that were not ideal in terms of how their their books were were put together at the end of the day. So hopefully, hopefully that gives you a sort of a general idea of of the skepticism I think that everyone has to have when they see one of those figures being reported about a particular year of wcw's existence and and i'm going to jump in here um, because
1: this one you know hits me hard turner county during the whole aol time warner merger process i've talked about it i'm not going to you know spend a whole lot of time talking about the ebitda goals and what everybody was striving for. But there were so many losses from so many other other divisions that were dumped into WCW. And there were so many profits that came from WCW that were accrued mm-hmm. or allocated to other divisions that we were intentionally being positioned as a loss leader. No one's going to believe it. The Dave Meltzer's of the world don't want to hear it. It's it's bogus. The numbers that you read about and hear about are bogus. It it's just ridiculous.
2: And I can say as well, Conrad, not to belabor the point, but <clears throat> I think this is something people pick up on when they read the book as well. Is you know, I I personally have in my possession some of these records and some of these materials, and I can tell you, looking at an income statement for WCW, for example, there are there are some items of revenue that you would expect to be on there for a a wrestling organization that aren't on there. So that begs the question, well, where is that revenue being recorded? So, um, you know, I I can support that general idea in terms of just the, the complexity would be the kind way of putting it. And probably the more accurate way would just be the mess that was the way that they did their books there.
0: One of the things I've always wanted to talk about here, uh, with you specifically is, Eric Bischoff's great, close, personal friend, Vince Russo. Mm. Uh, (laughs) It's written in your book that that Russo made, you know, over a million dollars for his contributions to WCW. And you actually review what those results were uh, Mm. and you break it down per show that it's, it's nearly $14,000 per show during his tenure. And you sort of break down the, the results. And there's been lots of rumor and innuendo because if you listen to Rousseau for very long, uh, Eric would say that you would have a brain aneurysm, but others would say that you would be fairly r- convinced that Russo made a difference in WCW, but then he had his, his knees cut out from under him, so to speak, he, the, the powers that be sort of neutered him. Uh, what did your conversations with some of these Turner executives reveal about Russo's tenure in WCW?
2: I think the general consensus was, you know, however you slice it, it it wasn't a good fit. I mean, you you look at what WCW had represented historically and what its uh, fan base knew the company uh, for for featuring in terms of the the style of wrestling product and and the type of storylines and stars that it promoted. You look at what was happening um, in terms of the competition and the direction that they were going in, and Vince Russo's, you know, personal booking philosophy and what he believed uh, worked, and and obviously, you know, in tandem with Vince McMahon and and many other people involved in that process. I mean, looking at it empirically, you can't deny, uh, you know, tremendous success from a, from a numbers point of view. Now, we we could sit here all day, and you know, I'm sure we could fit an entire day talking about our personal tastes and and what was uh, what should have been broadcast at that particular time. But for what he was asked to do and, and the, the environment he was in, you know, it was it was very successful. Um, looking back on it now, I think a lot of people that I spoke to and I would tend to lean this way myself as well. You sort of question how that that situation, again, similar to the Thunder uh, concept that we just talked about, how that ever could have worked um, just because you're looking at a person and a, and, a, and a company that are just so diametrically opposed. Um, I will say one thing that I've always found to be very disingenuous um, about an analysis of those first three months of Vince Russo's tenure at WCW, which of course would be the October 99 to uh, January 2000 period. Is this idea that because the last show before he took over was a certain number, and the final show that he wrote was another number, and I think there's a jump? I'd have to go back and look of almost an entire ratings point there. The idea is that that in and of itself shows that um, you know the company was was moving forward uh, in a in a positive direction in terms of attracting viewers on television, um, and he had made a great impact in in those three months. But I think a, a common sense comparison would be to look at the 13 shows that he wrote and compare them to the 13 prior shows. And I think, uh, you know, in the book you see those two periods compared and actually the difference, if I'm not mistaken, um, is is entirely negligible. There's there's hardly any difference whatsoever. And you can interpret that however you want. You You know, I know some people would make the argument – Um, you know, perhaps they, they should have given some more time. Other people would take an opposite view, but I, I've always found that very disingenuous being that that last show, obviously it was a a lame duck crew that knew a change had been made. It was just a matter of time before a new writing crew came in. And so to compare that to the final show that was written, um, you know, never really made a lot of sense in terms of a comparison for me.
1: And you guy, I, you know, I'm going to chime in here and this almost sounds like a defense of, of this Rousseau. But I think people that focus on, especially, you know, specific periods when ratings and trends mm-hmm. uh, kind of do themselves a disservice because seasonally, I mean, it, it, like right now, WWE, for example, is on a downward trend.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that's because NBA is really hot, weather's getting warmer. It's light longer. People are spending time outside. Historically, historically, ratings always go down in the spring and summer. Just it is what it is. So timing has a little bit. I'm not defending Vince Rousseau because I think Mm -hmm. it's, you know, whatever. But you
2: got to be aware when you start analyzing ratings, you got to take a lot of things into consideration. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. I think you know the, the reason for that comparison in the book was really just a, a response to um, a, a response to that being cited as evidence to support uh, the, the the success of that particular time period. And I'm I'm, you know, as with I would like to think most if not all topics in the book, you know, I try to remove my subjectivity from the discussion because you know I was always. <sighs> cognizant of the fact that, you know, I never worked in wrestling. I, 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 who cares what I think in terms of they should have done this or they should have done that. That's immaterial. Let's try to look at the the hard evidence and look at the numbers. And I think the fact that, that that comparison in terms of the, the, uh, the last show and uh, the last show before his tenure and the last show of his tenure has been used so much in many of the other accounts of the story. Um, that was what s- certainly provoked me to to kind of make that what I felt was more of an apples to apples comparison. But um, I certainly take heed, you know, what you're saying in terms of there's a lot of problems associated with that as well. Who was the toughest interview? Who was the most challenging interview? Somebody that you mm. really wanted to talk to, that didn't want to talk to you? Who was that? And someone who eventually uh, did agree to be to to speak with me, or? Yes, absolutely. yeah. Well, that's a good question. That's a very good question. Um, I would have to say, you know, we mentioned him before. I I would have to say Stu Snyder would probably be up there um, because, again, I think he kind of knew what was coming. (laughs) He kind of knew that I was going to ask him to respond to some of this conjecture. And so I could tell he was quite guarded and tended to rely on pretty short responses at first, and it took a while to, to get him to open up. Uh, so I think that would be one that, that came to mind. Um, I know that this was one that didn't pan out, and this is one of my few regrets um, when I look back on the entire project would be would be speaking to Brad Siegel. Um, I think it was a definite, definite miscalculation um, on my part in terms of how I approached that interaction because I felt that it was absolutely essential with everything that's been written about him um, to get him on the record. As, as so many people, so many other people were for this book and and really quote him directly about the things that related to his tenure. And, you know, I could tell that was really the turning point in terms of him being interested to talk or not. And in retrospect, I've kind of thought, well, you know, could I have spoken to him a little bit more on, on, on background, um, and, and got a little bit more from that. And that's just something I kind of had to live with and, and move on from. Um, but I remember that being kind of a, a difficult situation as well. I think once, uh, once he was aware that that was what was going to be happening and what I was looking for, um, you know, unfortunately that, that didn't work out. He was very vulnerable during that time. Do you think he would have given you anything even off background? I really don't know. I mean, uh, you know, as I said, uh, I mean, I, I'll, I'll, I can think of speaking with Harvey Schiller, for example, um, that there, there was a couple of things that he mentioned in our conversation that came totally out of left field. One thing in particular, which I'm quite surprised, hasn't been analysed enough. Um, there's there's a story that he tells. I'll just say, for the benefit again of people who haven't read the book, a story that he tells of his of, of an interaction or a meeting between himself and Vince McMahon, which, you know, <laughs> I, I I know absolutely 100% it has not been reported anywhere else, and he's never spoke spoke of that anywhere else, and that. He he opened up with that in response to a completely different question about another issue. I mean, I don't even think I asked him about Vince McMahon or the WWF, and you know, just in the midst of his answer, he went down that road. So, I suppose that's a long way of saying you never really know. You never really know until you sit across people or get them on the phone. Sometimes, uh, what the, what they're going to talk about. You know what, guy? That's a really interesting point, <clears throat> and it's actually one that I wanted to
1: to, to discuss. Harvey told me about that meeting. Mm. He actually told me he was going to have that meeting before he had that meeting. Is that right? And he debriefed me after he had that meeting. Harvey's point of view, and you got to remember, Harvey was a military guy. He was a colonel in the Air Force. He told me that he was going to take the meeting. He was going to read the competition. And he let me know what he thought. I knew of that meeting. Fascinating that you brought it up in your book and fascinating that you found it.
2: That's very interesting. Yeah. I think that's another one of those, I would actually classify it as more than a, than a tidbit. You know, that's kind of a, a major anecdote or however you want to classify it, that when you think about the significance of that, and when he talks about that meeting, generally speaking happening, um, it actually kind of shifts your perception of the whole Monday Night Wars. At least in in my book, you kind of look at things uh, a lot a lot differently when you realize that interaction took place. So, and, um, and, and it- honestly, Harvey wasn't like
1: a huge wrestling fan. He was a business. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a military guy that was brought in. He, you know, he had a lot of experience with the U.S. Olympic Committee.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He, he 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 just wanted to get the job done. So. For Harvey to have a conversation with Vincent Van, if it made sense, it worked out great. But yeah, he, he did tell me about that meeting.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Well, one last thing I want to ask about before we wrap things up here, we we appreciate you t- spending so much time with us today, but there's a hilarious story that I had no idea about. And I, I know that even Eric forgot because when he read it, he called me and he was laughing. Uh, he had forgotten <laughs> completely about his idea to fake his own death. And you wrote about it. And, uh, who brought up the Eric wanted to fake his own death? And uh, Eric, then I want you to sort of tell us what that storyline would have been.
2: Gosh, I'm trying to think of the first person who mentioned that. Um, I want to say it may have been Bill Burke. Actually, it may have been Bill Burke. Um, you know, I think it may have been in response to a question, something along the lines of, you know, how how would you evaluate your Interactions with Eric Bischoff and and the job that he did, and I think uh, you know somewhere in the midst of that answer, he he dropped that on me. And around that time, I was also speaking with with Harvey Schiller, and I think he he told a, a similar story. Um, but I I want to say that it was Bill Burke originally. Um, and from what I understand, Conrad, I think Buff Bagwell recently did a podcast where he kind of talked about a variation of it as well. So it's kind of taken taken on a life of its own. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I'd, I'd be definitely willing to hear what, what uh, Eric has to say about that as well. It's real
1: simple. I was a private pilot. I had my own plane. I was living in Phoenix. And I thought, all right, what can I do to create a ton of buzz? Now, I knew if I crashed a plane in the United States, everybody would be able to figure out exactly what happened. But I went, man, I crashed in Mexico. Information is going to be hard to find. Living as close as I did to Mexico, I figured I'll just die in a plane crash, and I'll come back on Halloween.
0: (laughs) What? why are you laughing so hard it's just so funny well I live close to Mexico I'll just die in a plane crash and come back at Halloween Havoc it's just the most <laughs> random
1: but it was Halloween Havoc people come back from the dead <laughs> would have been so appropriate
0: oh my god oh, I,
2: oh, I, could, I could listen to this all day guys you, sh- you guys should keep going
0: well I think we will I think <laughs> we'll continue this conversation at StarCast uh, if you haven't already pick up your tickets right now we're going to be in Las Vegas it's going down uh, this coming Memorial Day weekend this weekend uh, and they're on sale now at starcast.com and of course uh, if you can't make it to Las Vegas you can join in on all the fun at starcastonfight.com we've got a whole host of WCW brass uh, including our two guests today Mr. Guy Evans and Mr. Eric Bischoff and if you haven't already you need to bone up you need to order this book right now wcwnitrobook.com. And you can check it out on Amazon or anywhere else you enjoy books. Uh, But this is, without question, the very best book ever written on professional wrestling, especially if you're a WCW fan. And uh, we can't thank Guy enough for taking all the time for putting this together. You know, you and I haven't talked about this, Guy, but how many hours do you think you have in this project? Like, all told, your research, your interviews, the formatting, all together. How many?
2: I wouldn't even like to begin to guess, Conrad, to be honest with you. I mean, it was a three and a half year process from beginning to end. A lot of things happened in the intervening period. There were times where, uh, you know, I wasn't able to, to work on it. Um, my son was born in the middle of that time. And there was about a six month period where, you know, the book took a back seat and, uh, there were some questions in my own mind if, 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 and when it was going to see the light of day. But, um, I just want to say, you know, I, I really appreciate you guys breaking your format and having me on. Um, you know, I hope, I, I hope that, um, you know, I did a good job with the book. I, I certainly have a lot of respect for um, for, for everyone involved, really, in, in the wrestling business and never, never approached this from the perspective of being a Monday morning quarterback and sort of ranting and raving about what I think, you know, went well and what didn't go so well. I really wanted the people who were there to drive the story, drive the narrative. And uh, today I just feel very grateful that some of those relationships that I built and uh, and the people gave me their time and and also what the end product is. So uh, just just very fortunate that it ended up the way that it did. So thank you.
1: Guy, just thank you. Thank you very much
2: for doing such a great job. I appreciate that. Thank you.
0: And thank you everybody for tuning in. We'll be back next week with a little special extra. Uh, it's something that we don't normally do. I can't believe this is happening, Eric, but next Monday, it's your birthday. Big boy. Are you excited? You nervous? You anxious? Cause I got some surprises lined up for you. All right. Cat's got his tongue. <laughs> we'll see you next week right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff.